The subject of today's podcast is a multifaceted, innovative, and revolutionary Torah giant whose impact on the Jewish people resonates until today. This was a man of complex, creative, and diverse personality, a titanic intellect, a deep thinker with a prescient sense of where things are going for the Jewish people, a towering personality who was the Godel Adar, the greatest Jew of his time for many decades, Rabbi Yisrael Lipkin, known to all as Rabbi Yisrael, Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, 1810 to 1883. He was born in a small shtetl near Kovna called Zeiger, and his father was a rabbi, he eventually became the rabbi of the city of Tells. And the one thing that is a standout about his childhood and really throughout his whole life was that he was brilliant beyond words. And I think this is something we, we repeat uh, again and again when talking about great Jewish leaders is their intellectual ability. And I would say it's not surprising that many of the greatest and most impactful leaders of Jewish history were geniuses, and perhaps great intellect is a prerequisite to changing the world. But the truth is that geniuses come amongst the Jewish people a dime a dozen. Having ability to change the world in itself doesn't necessarily mean that you will indeed do that. It's those select few that harness their abilities to the max and have the strength of character and vision and personality and the help from the Almighty who actually succeed in affecting the nation at large. That said, Rabbi Sroll was an otherworldly intellect who employed his mind to the max. Later on in his life, uh, he abruptly passed out on the street and became temporarily paralyzed because of a stroke. And the doctors told him that the reason why he had a stroke was due to the constant strain he exerted on his brain. He was thinking at all times with such intensity, with such depth, that his brain was an overload and crashed. And the doctors told him, you have to have a minimum of two hours a day where you're not thinking so deeply. And that's when he began smoking which was much more common then than it is today, as a way to clear his mind from thinking. He had to distract himself to not think on a very deep level. At the age of 10, Rabbi Sroll gave a pilpul, which is a, a, a complex didactic lecture on Talmud in the local base medrash. Of course, a 10-year-old, that, that's, that shows that he was a distinct and a great scholar from the very beginning. At the age of 14... Uh, he sent a contrast, a booklet of novel Torah insights to Rabbi Kiva Eger, uh, who didn't respond. But we know from another source, it's documented that someone went to visit Rabbi Kiva Eger and he told him that there's a 14-year-old from Salant and he sent me a contrast, which is Goinus Atsuma, which means astonishing genius. And his Torah erudition and genius earned him the nickname as the Alfasi Katan, the, the small Alfasi. If you remember, in the 11th century, we met one of the titans of the medieval Jewish world, uh, Rabbi Yitzchak Alfasi from Fez, and in the 19th century, uh, Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, as a young man, was given that nickname. Later on, he would talk about his ability uh, by saying, I have the mind of a thousand men, and therefore, I have the responsibility of a thousand men. It's not the way of Musser for someone to ignore their abilities, 
but to have a deep recognition of them and also to understand that abilities come from God and thus they create responsibility. And also, very early in life, uh, Rabbi Yisrael exhibited uncommon, tenacious willpower and character and a total disinterest in non-spiritual matters. He was famous for many axioms, many aphorisms that he would say. One of them was uh, that this world is like an expensive hotel, replete with amenities, with food, with alcoholic beverages. And you walk into the room and you say, oh, it's all seemingly free. And you spend your time in the, in the hotel and you're imbibing on all these free goodies. But when you come to check out, you receive an enormous bill. And all the things that you partook in with exorbitant prices, you're left with a tremendous, hefty bill to pay at the end. And he would say, we can indulge in this world and not pay anything up front. It's like the expensive hotel. But we will have to pay astronomical prices for all that we indulge in the physical world once we get to the next world, once we check out, so to speak, of this world. Uh, However, he said, there is one way to avoid paying. There is someone who can go to the hotel, the proverbial hotel, and partake in whatever he wants and not have to worry about the consequences. If you have a diplomat or an ambassador with an expense account paid for by his country, he doesn't need to worry about the hotel bills. It's covered by other people. He says our objective is to make it our business to be an ambassador of God into this world, to be representing God in this world, And then we have an expense account and we can consume whatever we want over the course of fulfilling our mission and that won't detract. We don't have to pay that bill. Uh, That said, his whole life he refrained from partaking in physical pleasures to the extreme. Uh, Rabbi Shlomo Elyashiv, a famous Kabbalist from the 19th century, wrote the book Leshem Shebova Achlam and his grandson became the premier halachic authority of the uh, end of the 20th century, uh, he would say about Rabbi Sorosalanto, he took no pleasure in this world, he despised honor, he hated money, and he didn't even spend time with the frolicking with his kids. And these are the things that connect us most to this world, and he abstained from it. When Rabbi Yisrael turned bar mitzvah when he was 13, he decided that the one food that he loved more than any else, potato latkes, he would never eat it. And then a year later, it was not so uncommon for kids to get married quite young. So when he's 14 years old, he gets engaged and he goes to visit the home of his future in-laws. And they provide a plate of latkes right before him. So he sees the latkes and it's been a year since he's had one and they look delicious. But he made a decision to not consume these ever again. But how could he say no? How could he offend his hosts who are offering him food? So he decided after after this internal debate, which one of these two bad options should he choose? And he decided to eat the latkes. And he later on would say that he regretted that decision for the rest of his life. This shows us, I think, two things. First of all, that he was an ascetic with regards to this world uh, and partaking in matters of this world. But also it shows uh, a, a methodology of making choices. 
whenever you have two options, you have to weigh like a judge would perhaps uh, the pros and cons, the merits of each choice. Do I eat it and transgress my pledge to not eat it? Or do I refrain and withhold from eating it and then offend other people and maybe cause them to be embarrassed or ashamed? And this process of deconstructing an action, a decision, a choice, and character, it would eventually become a staple of Musr. And even when people do mitzvos, so we think of a mitzvah as being a monolithic act. Someone studies Torah, somebody does charity, someone acts benevolently, someone does chesed, kindness. The Musr masters would always try to take a action and disassemble it and deconstruct it and find out, are you really sure that there's no sinful undertones and the action is truly untainted? Maybe someone's acting in a kind way because they want to be acknowledged and they want to be recognized and they want to get a pat on the back and they want to be honored and they want to receive plaudits. Maybe someone's studying Torah to demonstrate their brilliantness. And Musa, what Musa came on to, uh, to demand is intensive insight and wisdom and self-knowledge and self-critique to analyze decisions and to try to rectify and cleanse and purify so that we treat we reach ethical refinement. There's another amazing story uh, that shows his decision-making process. My favorite story uh, of all stories. And uh, he, like we said earlier, he used to smoke. And uh, one time he woke up in the middle of the night and he wanted a cigarette and he didn't have any. And the problem was that there is uh, he the only place that sold cigarettes at that time of the night was a significant walk away, maybe a mile away. So it's the middle of the night and he's faced with two choices. Does he go back to sleep or does he go and get up and get dressed and make the trek down to the store and buy the cigarettes? And of course, there's merits on each side, but there's also dangers on each side. What if someone is too lazy to get up, make the trip and get those cigarettes? Well, then he's reinforcing a certain negative character within him. We have an innate tendency towards laziness, towards non-action. And thus, going back to sleep would reinforce that. Well, what about the other side? What if he gets up and gets stressed and makes the long trip and goes and buys the cigarettes and smokes the cigarettes? Well, then he's reinforcing a separate, a second negative character, and that is desire. You're so desirous of a physical pleasure and... Thus, you, you you get up and middle of the night, you're walking for a mile, and that's reinforcing your connection to that. So either one is bad, is bad choices. So in a classical uh, Musser way, Rabbi Yisrael invented a third option. He gets up, and he gets dressed, and he makes the trip. And by doing that, he stamps out a little bit of the tendency towards laziness. And he arrives at the shop, and he doesn't buy the cigarettes. And thus, he resists and repels and rejects the second negative characteristic, the one that says, okay, imbibe and indulge in pleasures. He goes back home and goes back to sleep. 
in our world, we're not used to thinking about actions and character on such a deep level. And uh, Rabbi Stroll, he he would plumb to the depths of man and try to understand the makeup and the tendencies of 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 a person to unfathomable uh, bull deaths, as we shall see. Uh, continues to see. Now, in his teenagers, uh, during his teens, uh, he discovered Rabbi Yosef Zundel of Salant. This was a hidden tzaddik, a hidden righteous person. This was a, a common thing that people would do. They would try to conceal as much as they can their personal piety and their personal character. So this great rabbi, who was a student of Rabbi Chaim of Volashen, he was masquerading as a water carrier. And he didn't give any lectures. And he didn't have any recognition. He never held any rabbinic post. But a young Rabbi Sral Salanta recognized that this is a man of tremendous greatness. And he would stalk him. And he would see his teacher fall, walking into the woods and having contemplation. And Rabbi Sral would creep behind him following and trying to analyze his every move. At one time, uh, while following him in the woods, he stepped on some branch or made some noise. And Rebbe of Zundel turned around and said to him a line that he said resonated within him for the rest of his life. He said to me, Yisrael, study Musser. If you study Musser, you'll become a Yerushalayim. You'll have fear of heaven. And he said this message went straight through him and touched him. And he decided to dedicate himself to Musser as well. After a very long and fruitful career, Rabbi Yisrael Salanter said about himself that all of his achievements, despite all of effectively changing the world, changing the Jewish world in a great way, his greatness, he has not yet achieved the ankles of Reb Zundel, his teacher. Uh, he remained in Salant for 18 years, and in 1840, he moved to Vilna. Vilna, as we've said before, was the Jerusalem of Lithuania. It was the biggest and most robust Jewish city in Lithuania, which was then in the Russian Empire. Today, uh, it's its own independent country. And he became a teacher in the yeshiva, the famous Romailus yeshiva in Vilna. Now, after a year or two, he recognized that he was more beloved by the students than the head of the yeshiva, and he decided to leave and open up his own yeshiva in Vilna. Now, though he had a local role and a local position, his focus was on the nation in crisis. And by that time, reform was all the rage in Germany. And there was a rapid repudiation of Torah uh, that terrified everyone. Uh, and for example, when uh, we've spoken about this before, uh, in 1844, there was a rabbinic conference in Brunswick in Germany where they officially uh, baked into the charter of German reform, uh, repudiation of Torah, of halacha. They formally ruled that intermarriage was okay, provided that the spouse is from a monotheistic religion. And uh, when he was analyzing that, Rabbi Sral said, uh, he made a uh, prescient and tragic prediction uh, saying that the rabbis in Brunswick, they repudiated the Shulchan Aruch, they repudiated the code of Jewish law, 
a time will come where the Gentiles will impose the Shulchan Aruch back upon them. And indeed, 91 years later, Germany adopted the, the Nuremberg Laws, and thus in the same country where Jews ruled that intermarriage was acceptable, the Gentiles ruled that it was not. And under those conditions, indeed, halacha was restored as Rabbi Yisrael predicted nearly a century prior. Uh, but in Western Europe, it was a very dire time for Torah and uh, for Jewry. And uh, by the 1840s, the winds of change were not limited to Germany. Uh, the tentacles of the Reform's sister, the Haskalah, were rapidly reeling in the Jews of Lithuania and Russia. These Mastilim, uh, these quote-unquote enlightened Jews, they had a deep-seated hatred for Torah and for the students of Torah, and they would employ the Russian government to aid their dismantling of Torah infrastructure. They would have rabbis, for example, replaced with assimilated government-recognized religious preachers. And there was a, a trend. Jews were moving out of the shtetls. The rabbis don't have any influence over them. They're moving to cities. They're joining universities. And sadly, those conditions allowed for many Jews to be to disappear from their nation. And this is especially true with respect to bright and intelligent people who, for the first time, were exposed to secular books and literature and thought and sophistication and were increasingly vulnerable to being swept away in the tides of Haskalah and being lost to their people. And there was no real widespread intellectual counterpart in the religious Torah world that could compete with what was then a burning desire for enlightenment, for the profound, for the scientific, for reason. What the Jewish world had to offer instead was the traveling Magid. Uh, these were fixtures in Eastern European Jewry, and these were speakers who would travel from shtetl to shtetl and town to town and city to city, and they give inspirational speeches to the Jewish congregation, get paid, and move on to the next town. But these people, they, they, they were storytellers. They were, they were funny, they were entertaining, they were witty, they were sharp, uh, and they would inspire, ostensibly, the people. But the serious scholars, they didn't show up. They, they, this was perhaps to be described as entertainment. Entertainment with religious twist to it. It wouldn't feel, fill a void for a young, ambitious man who dreams of being a great scientist or philosopher. Now, these new challenges from without, this, this changing world, were compounded by threats from within, as was the case in Germany. Uh, we mentioned a few episodes ago, Rav Hirsch commented that in Germany, there were reverse Moranos, people who were Jewish on the outside, externally religious and observant and pious, but devoid of Judaism within. The passion for Torah and Judaism amongst the Jews of Eastern Europe was swiftly eroding. And Rabbi Sroll recognized, and it's evident today, amongst any group of our nation who are not instilled with passion and meaning and inspiration of Judaism, religious people and religious communities of this ilk 
have a very short shelf life. It doesn't perpetuate. Uh, passionateless Judaism will invariably diminish and eventually die out. And it's clear to us now, as it was to Israel at the time, that the Jewish nation was at a critical juncture. And innovative and bold approaches were needed to solve these grave problems. And he began what became known as the Musser Movement. Uh, It was aimed at addressing both of the unique challenges of the time. It was a movement for the elite, for the searching, for the intellectuals. And it was oriented around real, deep, inspirational, meaningful, passionate Torah and mitzvos. Now, the movement was a runaway success on one hand, but arguably somewhat of a failure on the other. It did not succeed in creating a mass shift or trend in the nation at large, nor in halting the progress of Haskalah on a national level. However, it did succeed in crafting a cadre of giants of Muslim men of astounding personal character and greatness, and eventually, as we will see, the Musser movement joined forces and merged with the modern yeshiva movement, which together, a Musser with the yeshiva, it turned into an unstoppable force that still lives on today with the vibrancy and the flourishing of the yeshiva world. Now, aside from the Musser movement, Rabbi Sral, he tried various means to save the nation. He wanted to test out everything in the world. Anything that held out any hope of saving world Jewry from the Haskalah, he wanted to tinker with. He even tried Hasidus, though it's not clear to what extent. As an aside, my grandfather wrote in a letter that Rabbi Stroll did not oppose Hasidus, rather he complimented it and deepened it. He even, uh, he even experimented with the education of his son, Yom Tov Lippenmin Lipkin, and two students by allowing them to attend university. Eventually, this actually created a big hubbub when Haskalah publications, they argued, they claimed that Rabbi Yisrael was in favor of sending Jewish boys to college, to university. Look, he sent his son to university. And obviously, he must be in favor. And he responded by publishing in 1865 a disavowal of his young son's behavior. And he pleads to anyone, bring anyone who has any influence on him, bring him back to me, bring him back to Torah. Now, uh, this son, uh, youngest son of Rabbi Yisrael, uh, Yom Tov Lipman Lipkin, he tragically died at the age of 30 from smallpox. And before he died at the end of his life, he actually did repent and return to Judaism. But he became a great mathematician and he invented what became known as the Lipkin parallelogram, a uh, mechanism, a mathematical mechanism. Uh, and that was Rabbi Sol's son who went to university. Uh, the other two students who went to university, the other two guinea pigs, perhaps, of this experiment, they abandoned Jewry in, altogether. And uh, there's a story about one of them 
a Dr. Einhorn, became a military doctor, but he intermarried, and then he went crazy. And he was living in Vienna with his non-Jewish wife and children, and in a fit of insanity, he lit his own house on fire, and he fled across the border to Russia, and he became this eccentric penitent who would just hang out in local synagogues. And apparently, he would wear tefillin all day, and he would give medical advice and medical services uh, to local Jews. Uh, that was a student of Rabbi Yisrael Salanter who went to university and went a little bit awry. Now, after these failed experiments, Rabbi Yisrael, he didn't approve at all of any secular studies program. He went the entirely opposite direction, and he didn't allow, even in yeshivas that were controlled by his own disciples, he didn't allow them to have even a rudimentary secular studies program. But let's talk about the Musser movement. It's important for us to clear away misconceptions. Musser is not an ideology. It's not a worldview. It's not a religious theory. What exactly is Musser, and what was this movement? So I think a good way to define Musser is that Musser is the tool to integrate Torah into man. Musser is going to enable the Torah to affect a person, to change, to improve, to cleanse himself from all bad character and behavior until man can reach ethical purity and personal perfection. It's not a new type of study. It's a format of study of Torah. It's a, it's a, a format of inculcating, integrating, and self-application of Torah study. In a letter that Rabbi Yisrael Salanta wrote to his student, a series of which were published posthumously under the name Or Yisrael, Rabbi Yisrael writes, quote, Transforming a person from bad to good without Musser is like attempting to see without an eye and to hear without an ear. Musser is the tools for unlocking and unleashing the power of Torah so it can change and transform a person. Uh, their motto, one of the mottos of the Musser movement, as long as the candle yet burns, it is possible to repair. So long as the candle of one's soul is yet vibrant, he can still rectify and repair his character. Where does that story come from? So we're told that, um, or legend has it, that Rabbi Sra Salanta brought a, or he, he saw a shoemaker. Did he bring the shoes or did he not bring the shoes? That's uh, different versions of the story. But he saw a light, a candle burning in the middle of the night. So he went to investigate and he finds a shoemaker hard at work. And he asks him, well, till when are you going to work fixing shoes? So the shoemaker points at the candle and says, well, so long as the candle is yet burning, I'm going to fix shoes. And this simple casual encounter wouldn't mean much to us. But Musser is applying Torah to ourselves, but focusing inwardly and applying whatever we encounter to ourselves. So... Rabbi Yisrael took this just simple sentence and made it in, into 
the motto of Musar. And I think it's kind of fitting that a simple encounter with a shoemaker that for a non-Musar man would leave no impression at all, it would end up personifying the movement that espouses self-application, uh, even uh, about things that others would consider minor. Now, so what are the components of, of Musar and the Musar movement? So I think first, uh, to successfully change a person, well, that demands a deep understanding of the inner workings of that said person. Now, this depth of understanding of humans was a hallmark of all the great Musar masters. For example, uh, several years after World War I, the great Rabbi Yeruchim Levavitz, a Musar master par excellence, he returned to Mir after being absent for many years uh, due to the war. And after three months being in the yeshiva with 300 students, he said, I know all the good character, all the midos, all the attributes, the character traits of all 300 students, the positive character. And for most of them, I understand the elements of their character that need to be fixed. That's an example of the depth of understanding of humans that was uh, the hallmark of great Muslim masters. Rabbi Stroll himself was an absolute genius in human psychology in general and uh, individuals. Uh, for example, the notion of the unconscious mind, the idea upon which modern psychoanalysis is built, that was discovered by him 40 years before it was popularized by Sigmund Freud. Uh, he writes that, uh, he asks a question, uh, the Midrash says that when Abraham was sacrificing Isaac or attempting to sacrifice Isaac, his eyes were dripping with tears. He's very sad. Yet there's another source that says that God testifies that Abraham was 100% committed and had nothing, had no resistance towards uh, doing this act of sacrificing his son for God. So how do they reconcile with each other? How could he be both sad and crying, but be totally committed? So Rabbi Israel explains uh, by giving a mushal, a parable. Uh, suppose a teacher or a rabbi has a son who's, who's not, not the greatest kid in the world. He's a good for nothing. And he also has a student who's a star success. So whenever he sees the student, he smiles. He's delighted. And when he sees his son, he sees he frowns. He's not so happy with him. But suppose in the middle of the night, a fire breaks out. And both his son and his student are in amid the inferno. Instinctively, he's going to run and grab his son first. And only then the student. On the outer layers, on the conscious mind, he is closer to his student. But on the unconscious mind, inside, he has a stronger bond with his son. And similarly, with regards to Abraham, uh, consciously, Abraham was doing it entirely wholeheartedly. But unconsciously, there's an element of the paternal love that caused him to be weeping over this event. Uh, and it's interesting, after 
a Torah giant unlocks a truth. Rabbi Yisrael to unlocks this truth of this from found in the spiritual world. Once it's brought into this world on a spiritual cosmic level, it becomes discoverable even by those that are not connected to this world. I'm not trying to say that Freud read the works of Rabbi Salanter and that's where he got his idea. I'm not suggesting that. What I am suggesting is that once on a cosmic level, a truth, a Torah truth, a spiritual truth in reality gets brought down to this world, it becomes possible for others, even those not connected to this world, to access it. So the first thing about a Musr is uh, self-understanding. But to gain self-understanding, you have to have self-discovery. You have to acquire a deep and exhaustive catalog of personal attributes, both good and bad. And then, yeah, hence, uh, the, the Musr practice of setting aside designated times for self-reflection, for character rumination, to dwell on behavior, and to try to isolate the fulcrum of behavior. What's really at play? What really is motivating people to behave in a certain way? Uh, what is a truth based upon an intellectual process? And what's just a delusion, a fantasy, if you will, that needs to be avoided? And uh, as a component of this, the Muslim masters would always be eager to hear from their detractors. The people who think negatively about you, your enemies, they don't face the same obstacles in pinpointing your flaws. Thus, if you want to have self-discovery, you should listen and hearken to what your enemies say because their character assessments are pure gold. We tend to recoil and lash out and contradict pointed criticism from our haters, despite the fact, or maybe precisely because of the fact, that we have a niggling suspicion that they're actually hitting the nail on the head. Rabbi Yisrael will quote the verse in Psalms 92, When those who would harm me rise up against me, my ears have heard. He would interpret this to mean, When my enemies speak ill of, of me, my ears perk up, because there's likely some truth in their words and truth that I need if I want to fix myself and truth that would be otherwise very difficult to access. Now, of course, self-cognizance is terrifying. No one wants to think that they're bad people. And that's, again, one of the obstacles you're going to face if you want to do Musr, the way Rabbi Sorrell outlined, is that we have a tendency to try to deflect any sort of criticism because it makes us feel incomplete. It makes us come to terms and have to face up with the fact that we do have flaws. Now, the giants of Musr... They would do this by design. Uh, and thus, it's not uncommon to find the giants of Musr to speak about themselves very disparagingly. Uh, there was once a story where Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, he was giving a lecture. And he looks up and he sees right above his head, there's a large chandelier. So he gets down uh, from the podium and he says, I, I cannot speak over there. I can't, I can't give a lecture from there because I, I think from, from my actions, I am guilty of a capital offense. And I think it's quite likely that the chandelier will collapse on top of me and kill me. And I don't want to put myself in danger. 
And of course, uh, his character and his greatness and his holiness is unimpeachable. But the Musser masters train themselves to try to come to terms with the fact that they have flaws. And those flaws are serious. And those flaws are deep-rooted. And it became their mission to try to fix them. He said about himself, I don't trust myself to be left alone in a room with someone else's uncounted money. If someone else leaves a pile of cash here that they didn't count, I cannot trust myself to be left in the room with it because who knows, maybe I'll steal it. And one of his Musser master successors said about himself, I don't trust myself with someone else's counted money. Even if the other person counted the money, I don't want to be left alone in a room with it. I think it's a recognition of how deep-rooted someone's corruption goes also impresses upon him how difficult it is to change. Rabbi Sroll would say, it's easier to finish all of Talmud and to know it than it is to change a single character. Character is almost baked in. It's almost hardwired to who we are. And to change it, it demands a lot of hard work. Now, it's interesting that in trying to influence himself or one of his elements of personal philosophy and a theme that he would employ to try to influence others was the idea of fear of punishment. Fear is the greatest of motivators. And thus, if you want to influence others, you want to coax recalcitrant brothers back to Torah, it's one of the most potent tools to do that. But, you know, as a caveat, it's important to recognize that it's a very volatile, dangerous tool. But Rabbi Israel would base a lot of his spiritual work on fear of punishment. Why am I doing mitzvahs? Why am I withholding from sins? Because I don't want to be punished by God. And he would stress that it's insufficient for someone to know what punishment the Almighty meets out for sins. He said someone has to create vivid visualizations in their mind's eye of what it's going to be like. And he once told someone, uh, let me explain to you, give you a picture, an image, an illustration of what Gehenna is, of what purgatory or hell is like. He said, imagine you place, you place your finger in a fire uh, for five seconds. Now imagine that pain spread over the surface of your whole body. Now imagine that for a whole year, that's Gehenna. Obviously, that's uh, that's terrifying and maybe under certain conditions would be very motivating. Now, when asked why he doesn't study Kabbalah, he responded, well, what do I care in which firmament of the spiritual spheres the Almighty is? All I know is that as punishment for every sin in heaven, I will be whipped with streams of fire and it will hurt very much. Along these lines, Rabbi Sorrell employed a Jewish version of Pascal's wager, which argues that a rational person should behave as though God exists and seek to believe in God because if God does not exist, you don't lose anything or what you lose is very limited, some pleasures. Whereas if God does exist, then there's infinite gains 
and you're avoiding infinite losses. So Bisrael had a had a Jewish version of this. He would he would tell people, especially later on in his life when he would go to Germany and France to try to reach out to Jews that had strayed very far from from observance. He would tell them, so suppose you had a uh, a traveler, a weary and thirsty traveler who arrives to town. And he's so thirsty, and the townspeople, they give him a glass of water. And as he's about to drink the glass of water, to drain, to quench his thirst, someone shows up and says, wait, 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 don't, don't drink that water. That water is poisoned, and I swear to you, if you drink the water, you're going to die. And all the townspeople say, don't listen to this guy. He's out of his mind. He's crazy. You have nothing to worry. Just drink the water. So Rabbi Shrell would say, would you take the risk? Even if you're very thirsty, and even if it's only one person saying the water is tainted, you shouldn't take the risk. It's, it's illogical for a person to take the risk because the potential result of dying because of poison outweighs the benefits. And even if the person is making up the whole story, you don't know for sure. And he would tell them, maybe I'm that crazy old man. I may be wrong. But I'm telling you that the Torah says that someone who desecrates Shabbos will suffer unimaginable eternal torment and have their soul disenfranchised. And you know what? Maybe I am an old loon. But perhaps, just maybe, I'm not crazy. Is it worth to take the chance? Again, we see how he would use fear of punishment as a tool to motivate people to re-embrace Torah. Now, another element that became deeply connected to Musar was the focus on interpersonal mitzvos. As we mentioned, Rabbi Yisrael recognized that religious Jews were very good at being religious. And they were experts at dotting the I's and crossing the T's of observance. But their Judaism was devoid of, of realness, of passion, of meaning. And as such, they neglected interpersonal mitzvahs, mitzvahs between man and one's fellow. And the story is told that he was once praying next to someone on Yom Kippur. And the person was praying with such fervor, and he was crying and sobbing that Rabbi Yisrael, he says, I, I, wanted a, I wanted a pray from such a book, from such a machzer, a, a book of prayers that were drenched in tears. So he leaned in to try to read from the words of the person standing next to him, and the person shoved him back. Like, no, no, this is my book. Like, don't, don't peek in. And it's just striking that someone can be so immersed in Torah and Judaism, but be so far from the real purpose of what it should be doing to them, of how it should be transforming him into a greater person. And therefore, there's a need to educate the masses on the essence of what Torah is really trying to do to us and try to utilize it and, and, and maximize the impact that it can have in our lives. He would uh, talk about someone who wants to hear the lecture, the speech of the Magid. Well, that's, that's a good thing, right? There's uh, someone coming to town, a great rabbi, and he's going to give a talk, and he's going to be inspiring and teach you about mitzvot and Torah. And that's a good thing. But the person wants to go, so he's running. He's a little bit late. He looks at his clock. He's five minutes late, and he's running, and he's knocking over people and knocking over 
displays and he's able to bump into 10 people and and disrupt 10 people because he wants to have a spiritual uplifting says well that 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 you know you anything that you may gain on a spiritual level is vastly outweighed by what you will use and most is about having torah penetrate us and changing us and if we're really changed by torah then it will be manifest in our interactions with other people. And therefore, whenever he studied, and whenever he taught, he would always strive to glean a practical, actionable insight from any section of Talmud. So, for example, uh, the Talmud uh, talks about shar shenardach es hapara. If you have an ox, and the ox gores the cow. And the question is, is there a, there's now a dead calf next to the cow. And we don't know if the calf was born and died irrespective of the ox, or did the ox gore the cow and that caused her to miscarry? And thus, the question is, does the owner of the ox need to pay the owner of the cow for the calf separately or not? So that seems to be entirely removed from any sort of ethical undertones. But Rabbi Srosalanta would understand this whole or would teach or draw a lesson about Lashon Hara, about evil gossip from this particular uh, story. And uh, there's a few famous aphorisms about making Torah real and about uh, correct interpersonal attitudes that he would say. For example, uh, the beginning of the book of Bab Metziah talks about two people who come to court each of them seizing, grabbing hold onto half of a garment. And each one of them claiming that they own the entire garment. And the other person, he just grabbed it. It's really mine. So the Mishnah says that the halacha is that they have to split it. So they sell the garment and they split the proceeds between the two people. Each one who's holding half of it and claiming half of it and claiming the whole, the whole of uh, the entirety of it. How would Rabbi Swazilanta teach that? He says, two people are holding into the garment. One guy, each one says, it's entirely mine. Says the Almighty, they should split it. It's important for people when they study, when you're immersed in Talmud, you have to remember where this comes from. This comes from God. Every time it says, Omar Mar, which means the master said, we don't know who it is, says Rabbi Swazilanta, it's reminding you, that Omar Mar says the master, the master of the world is really speaking here in the pages of the Talmud. Some other lines that he would say uh, that became very famous axioms of Musser. Someone else's physical needs are my spiritual needs. Someone else needs something to improve their body. I improve my soul by taking care of my neighbor's body. Your heart is Rishus Hayachid. Your heart is your own private domain. However, your face, that's Rishus Harabim. That's the public domain. You're depressed. You're sad. You have some grief. You have no right to impose that upon other people's. And his sensitivity to other people was legendary. There's a few famous stories I want to share here. One of the most famous ones was that Rabbi Srosalanter was walking to shul on the night of Yom Kippur. And he hears a baby crying. Apparently, 
the mother had left the baby with a nine-year-old daughter so that she could go to shul. So she, she wants, she's motivated, she's inspired, and she goes, she wants to go to shul, so she leaves the baby with her daughter, who's nine years old. So Rabbi Stroll hears the baby crying and runs to see what he could do to help. And he prepares a bottle for the baby. And he's about to leave. And he sees that this young girl is very scared and doesn't want him to leave. So he stays. And he misses the entire Kol Nidre. One of the most famous prayers of the year. He misses it. Because he's there with two young children who are scared. And his rationale is, listen, praying is a mitzvah of rabbinic origin. But chesed, kindness, that's one of the greatest mitzvahs in the Torah. And if I have a choice between the two, I have to choose the chesed. Uh, The story is told that he was traveling in a wagon with students. And the students are talking about the most erudite matters of Talmud and Jewish philosophy. And he keeps on changing and steering the conversation to the most simple matters. And afterwards, they say to him, you know, you're someone who's always talking about Torah. Why are you why are you always changing the conversation to talk about simple things? He says, Well, we have a wagon driver. And this is a simple Jewish peasant. And we have no right to discuss lofty Torah matters and to disinclude him from the conversation because we want to study Torah. If you are going to do a mitzvah, but make someone else feel bad as a, as a result, is that really a mitzvah? Another story is told that he was uh, traveling uh, once and he arrived at a given town in uh, for Shabbos and all the people of the town are clamoring to have the great Rabbi Yisrael Salanter come to them for Shabbos. So he ends up by uh, one of the hosts and they arrive home from shul and the host notices that the challah is not covered as per the custom. So he starts screaming at his wife, uh, and she's like, why is the challah not covered? And the wife is scrambling, and she's apologizing, and she quickly runs to get the cover for the challah. So Rabbi Sorrell asks this individual, why do, why do we cover the challah? Why, why is this tradition that when someone makes kiddush on Friday night, you have the challah covered? And the man looks at him, quizzically. Of course, you, you're the famous rabbi. Of course you know the reason why. Because typically, we always make the bracha, the blessing on bread first. And on Shabbos, we have to make the blessing on the wine first. And therefore, we don't want to embarrass the bread. So Yisrael says to him, wait, don't you just hear what you said? We go to great lengths to not embarrass the challah, the bread. It's inanimate. It doesn't have any feelings. But you're embarrassing your wife publicly? You're, you're, you're behaving you're following the ritual. You're doing what you're supposed to do, but you're missing the point. You're missing the message. Uh, there was once a time that he was uh, washing his hands at a wedding before eating bread. And he washed his hands only till the joints. And his students noticed this and they say, wait a minute. Doesn't the Talmud say that although one is obligated to wash the hands only to the joint, but there's a special benefit it's, it's a better mitzvah when you pour on the whole hand and use a significant amount of water. And Rabbi Swazalanta responded, but look, there's a water carrier who has to go to the well and has to schlep all the water so we can wash our hands. 
I have no right to impose my stringency. I want to wash my whole hand. But you know what? On the back of someone else's labor, I can't impose my stringencies. Uh, one final story here. Uh, the story is told that he had a yurt site for his father. And the tradition is, halacha is, that when someone has a yurt site for their parent, they should try to lead the services on that day. And as he says he wants to lead the services, another person shoves him out of the way. And he says, well, I have a yard site for my daughter and I want to lead the services. So Rabbi Srol, he stepped aside and allowed that person to lead the services, to be the chazan. And the students asked him, the halacha actually states that whenever there is a question of who comes first, someone who has a yard site for their parent, someone who has a yard site for their child, the one who has the yard site for the parent comes first. So why did you allow him to go ahead of you? He says, well, what, what's the whole idea of leading the prayers on the day of the yard site, the day of the anniversary of the death of your father? It's because to do something good, to do a, a merit, meritorious act that's going to provide a benefit an ascension for the soul of the deceased. Well, I'm doing a mitzvah here. There is a, a Jew who's having a tough day, who lost a child, and I did a mitzvah of giving him the right to lead the services. Let that be the merit for my deceased father. These are some of the ideas and attitudes of the Musser movement. What about the practical implication of this movement? So, of course, above all, it is Musser study. It's the study of ethical teachings of Torah. Now, Rabbi Israel did not invent the idea of Musser study. In fact, uh, the great Musser books, they're hundreds of years old at the time. Uh, the great book by the Ramchal, The Path of the Just, actually became the seminal work of Musser and of the Musser movement. But he promulgated not uh, to study Musser, but how to study Musser, a, a format of Musser study in a way that it would unlock the sealed hearts and unleash its potency and its power. Musser and the Musser movement was studied aloud in a sing-song with sfasayim dolkots, with lips that are aflame. Rabbi Shral taught, if you read a sentence and you're not impassioned by it yet, you read it again. And you read it again and repeat it until it's within you. It resonates within you. It's exploding inside of you. And then it's actually going to change you from within. Another aspect of the Musser movement was the innovation of the Musser schmooze, the Musser lecture. It wasn't a, a, a preachy, inspirational speech, but a profound Musser clarification. There's the Vad, which is sort of like a workshop to clarify traits, character traits, and seek practical ways to inculcate them and acquire them. And above all, the Musser movement was about the establishment of a base Hamusser, a house of Musser, a designated room where people would study Musser books by themselves. Now, these houses of Musser were targeted at the lay people. They would come to study Musser or hear a Musser schmooze, a Musser lecture. Later on, as we will see, the Musser movement is going to make a pivot to merging with the yeshiva movement uh, that began at the time. 
Now, Rabbi Yisrael was essentially arguing for a whole new reframing of the nation. And like all revolutionaries in the Jewish world, he faced a hurdle in implementing his innovations. Jews are notoriously resistant to change, and that hampers all revolutionary ideas, both the good ones and the destructive ones. And specifically with Musser, he faced an additional problem. The understanding at the time was that Musser, that's for the common folk. It's for simpleton. It's, it's, it's very shallow. It's not deep. It's not profound. It's not for scholars. It's not for people of sophistication. So Rabbi Yisrael had to employ subterfuges to get his foot in the door. Now, he had already established himself as a great goan and otherworldly Torah scholar, and he would travel from town to town, and he would deliver Torah lectures on the highest level for the greatest scholars. And they would put announcements, post-announcements, the great goan Rabbi Yisrael Salanto is going to come here on Wednesday night, and he'd give a great lecture, and they put a list of sources for people to read up on in, in advance. And the all the great people of the town, all the Torah scholars of the town would assemble, and he would bedazzle them with genius and novel Torah insights. And at the end of the speech, he would segue into a fiery Musser speech, a classic bait and switch. And there was a great story at the time uh, where uh, those that were resistant to Musser they they knew his shtick, they knew what he did, and they decided to upend him. And so uh, a couple days ahead of schedule, Rabbi Sorosalanter sends a list of sources for people to read up on, only five or 10 or 15 or 20 different sources throughout Talmud and all the commentaries. So these people, they take the source, they take the page down and they put up a new page. And they take nonsensical sources. They just write random pages of Talmud from all over that don't seem to have any connection or don't, don't have any connection. And they hang it up instead. So for two days, all the people of town are preparing these sources. And it doesn't seem to have any connection. And that's because they're altered, the altered sources. So Rabbi Sral Salanto, he arrives. And of course, he's bound to be tremendously ashamed by getting up there and talking about either talking about different sources or being stuck. So he gets there and he looks at the sign and he sees that someone altered the sources. And there's 10 different or 10 or 20 different sources that he didn't send and he prepared for. On the fly, as he's walking up and he prepares and he get, gathers his thoughts uh, at the lectern, he crafted a new lecture based upon these made-up sources and was able to be dazzled the crowd nonetheless. He has such a – obviously, this story is, is a mind-blowing story, but it shows his his absolute command of, of every area, every nook and cranny of Torah and his tremendous uh, genius. So he goes on this um, pilgrimage, on this tour of popularizing and disseminating Musser – and every place he gets to, he speaks, he gives impassioned pleas. We have to establish a base of Musser, a house of Musser, a place where it's devoted. People come study Musser on a regular basis, study words of Jewish ethics, and would infuse city upon city in Lithuania to take on the Musser mantle. And the story is told uh, that these 
houses of Musa actually garnered a spiritual renewal all over the country. The great Rabbi Yitzhak Hutner once met a old Lithuanian Jew who still remembered Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, and he said that the most vile place of every town was the marketplace where they sold fish. He says the women who sold fish, they were the they they were cussing. They were the lowest. They were the lowlifes of society, and they would always speak in a really in a really brutish way. And he said every city that had a base base of Musser, a house of Musser that was influenced by Musser, you wouldn't hear a single curse word in the fish marketplace for 50 years after Bishwal Salanter dies. It doesn't mean that these women came to the base of Musser. Rather, it means that there was a, a renewed atmosphere, a renewed connection to, to Torah and to Musser and to character perfection that it influenced the entire city. In 1848, there was a horrific cholera epidemic in Vilna. And Rabbi Yisrael, he organized a makeshift hospital with 1,500 beds. He got doctors to work pro bono. He organized a Hatzala, a, a task force of 60 Torah students. And he gave them clear instructions to take anyone to the hospital, even if it's on Shabbos, don't allow a Gentile to do it, because you know why? Uh, even though it's a prohibition to desecrate the Shabbos, but if someone's life is maybe at risk, and you dilly-dally and wait, maybe we get a Gentile to do it, then it's possible that the person may die. The Talmud is very severe about someone who hesitates and endangers others. And there's a story goes that uh, one boy, he contracted cholera, and the these students, they came and they took him on Shabbos and eventually the child survived. And a week later, the child's father comes and thanks Rabbi Sor Salanter, but he says to him, I think you were a little bit too exaggerated by how much desecration of Shabbos you allowed. So Rabbi Sor responds and he says, I took 60 young men and I got them to volunteer to work all day with people that are Deathly sick and highly contagious. And not a single one of them got sick. Not, not even one. Can you do that? Could you accept upon yourself that responsibility? Don't tell me that I'm being too lax with desecration of Shabbos. Because an attitude like yours will get a lot of people killed. Now, uh, that year, uh, amid this raging epidemic, was the most sacred day of the year, Yom Kippur. So people that are ill, people who are susceptible to contracting illness, for them it might be very dangerous for them to fast on Yom Kippur. So Rabbi Yisrael Salanta put up signs that everyone has to eat on Yom Kippur, and that year he prepared cakes and cookies and during the services after Shachos Yom Kippur, he gets up in the main synagogue and he makes Kiddush and he drinks and he eats. And he says everyone else has to. It's a mitzvah for them to eat. And the logic, of course, is that suppose he just announces whoever feels a little bit faint should break their fast. Had he said that, there would have been people, the pious people, the simple people of Vilna that would have kept on fasting 
and endanger the lives. And in order to prevent those people from suffering, the fast had to be annulled for the entire community. That was his rationale. Now, uh, after Yom Kippur, he was called to the rabbinical court, to the basin of the city. And they tell him, we're not here to debate with you as to whether or not what you did was halachically sanctionable or not. But you should know that there is a basin in town. There's a court. And you're one of the great rabbis of the whole world, and everyone knows that. But still, you shouldn't you shouldn't take into your own hands this kind of question. You bring it to us, and if you could convince us, then maybe we, we would have followed. But because you avoided us, it's improper. And they they continue their admonishment by telling him, "We de- you deserve to be penalized, but we're not going to punish you. We want you to decide what." punishment is appropriate. So Rabbi Yisrael responded. He says, if you want to consider penalizing me, I'm going to warn you that I'm going to nullify all the divorces, all the gittin, all the divorce documents that the Vilna based in, that the Vilna court has performed over hundreds of years. Why? Because the Vilna based in it follows a procedure that was promulgated by one of the great halachic authorities, and I have an argument upon it that you cannot refute. And Rabbi Sral posed his argument, the rabbinical court cannot refute it, and they said, you know what, we're not going to pick fights with you, and they just allowed him to go. And that's the uh, story of uh, the cholera epidemic of 1848 and what happened to Yom Kippur. Now, around that same time, Rabbi Yisrael was offered to lead the rabbinical seminary founded in Lithuania by the Haskalah, by the Maskilim. And this was supported by the Russian government. If you remember, we, we mentioned the Haskalah, they would try to employ the government to try to achieve their religious, or more precisely, undoing the religions, their aims, their goals. And they, when they saw Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, uh, they looked at him as though he was one of them. You know, he, despite the fact that he was battling and steaming in ways to uh, undo them, uh, they thought he was an ally. You know, he always was respectful, and he spoke with about the beauty and the meaning of Judaism. He was always dressed immaculately. He was knowledgeable in foreign languages and other fields. He was clean. He was regal. And they said, you know what? To give it some legitimacy, let's have someone like Rabbi Sosalanter head this new rabbinical seminary. And he was, he rejected it. Later on, he said, he, he explained his rationale for rejecting this post by saying that in the regular world, you know, someone who's uh, capable becomes a physician. Well, why, do, why does he become a physician? Well, to, to make a living and to maybe become even rich. And therefore, what happens when there's two students, there's two, there's, there's two patients. One of them is rich, one's poor. Which one of them does he give more care, more, more health care to? The one who's rich, the one who's poor. Well, obviously, the rich person could pay more, so therefore he'll give more attention to the rich person. A rabbi and the Jewish people who studies Torah for its correct reasons 
he doesn't have that same attitude. It's not about the rabbinet or the salary or wealth. When there's a poor person and a rich person that have a halachic question, he's going to work harder to help the poor person. Right? The poor person brings the, 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 the food. Is it kosher or is it not kosher? Well, a Jewish rabbi, he tries to help the poor person more than helping the, the, the earlier because that person has a greater need. That's what Torah is about. And to take Torah and relegate it to becoming a subject, a degree, a profession, that the rabbi should be like lawyers or physicians, I don't want to have any part of that. And he refused to accept the post, and then the education minister of Russia personally asked him to accept it. And that's one of those, uh, an offer you can't refuse. But he refused nonetheless, and he had to flee, and he moved out of Vilna, moved to Kovna. Uh, we know at that time he, he left uh, uh, Vilna, moved to Kovna. And uh, some have argued that the real reason why he left Vilna was due to the fact that he had had this massive conflict with the rest of the rabbis of the town, and he didn't want that to fester, so he moved. But regardless... Uh, both are uh, are true, and the only question is, what was his motivation to move to Kovna? Eventually, he moves to Kovna, and uh, he continues the dissemination of the Musr movement. Uh, he establishes a Musr-focused yeshiva with a student body of approximately 150 students, and he founds a Musr-based, the Kovna Koilel, which is the first modern-day Kolel, uh, married students, continue their studies and receive a stipend. And many of the future Torah leaders were alumni of this Kovner Kolel, which continued until World War II. Now, after 10 years in Kovner in 1857 or 1858, he moved to Konigsberg in Germany on a mission to revitalize German Jewry. Now, remember, the Haskell and the Reform hit Germany 50 years before it hit Russia, before it hit Lithuania. And he said that the Jews of Russia, they're in a tailspin. They're barreling down this proverbial slope of religious development. It's very difficult to change their course. They have so much velocity and momentum. However, German Jewry, well, they're, they're, they, they had already hit rock bottom. And they're primed to be nudged back up the hill. Maybe in absolute terms... The Jews of Lithuania, the Jews of Russia, are much better off, but in terms of, of who is more impressionable, it's likely that German Jewry is more impressionable. People that are totally gone from Torah and tradition are easier to move than those who are swiftly abandoning it. So he moved to Germany, and he learned to speak German, and he went to universities, and he gave lectures at universities, and he tried to get the universities to teach Talmud. He also spent time in Paris, which was even worse than the state in Germany. In Germany, at least you had uh, pockets of orthodoxy with Torah der Heretz of Rav Hirsch. Paris, France, was a spiritual wasteland, devoid of Torah and bereft of yeshivos, lacking institutions of tradition. And he began a monumental effort to translate the Talmud into French. When that faced roadblocks, he made a Talmudic dictionary in French. He tried to get rabbis to settle there, 
And uh, in 1883, Rabbi Yisrael Salanter died in Germany. Now, the Musser movement, it outlived him. And towards the end of his life, as we mentioned earlier, it made a pivot and took on its most prominent form. Now, originally, the Musser movement was targeted at lay people. Rabbi Yisrael did not attempt to inject it into the greatest yeshiva of the time, into Velazhin. But over the course of time, Rabbi Yisrael's own students established Musser yeshivas on their own, most notably being Rabbi Simcha Zissel Ziv, a fascinating giant of Musser known as the Altar of Kelm, the Elder of Kelm. He founded the famed Talmud Torah of Kelm, which was a small boutique yeshiva based upon Musser principles. Uh, circa 1880, another endlessly fascinating figure, Rabbi Nassim Tzvi Finkel, known as the Altar of Slabatka, the Elder of Slabatka, he was a student of the Altar of Kelm, and he founded what became the largest and most impactful Musar Yeshiva of them all, the famed Slabatka Yeshiva. Stories told that before its founding, he approached Rabbi Yisrael and asked him what ought to be the essence of Yeshiva. And Rabbi Yisrael responded with a verse in Isaiah, Lahachayos lev nidkaim, to inspire the heart of the depressed, to give life to the spirit of the Lord, to uplift a person, and to breed men of great distinction and stature. So slowly, Musa began to trickle into the yeshiva world. There was staunch opposition to Musa uh, in general, but that paled in comparison to the fierce opposition Musa faced in yeshiva. We can have a whole series of talks uh, about the battles and the wars over Musser in the yeshivas in the 1880s and 1890s. In fact, the aforementioned, the, the aforementioned Slabatri yeshiva, it actually it had a, a schism and it split into two separate yeshivas in 1897 over Musser. But in the end, the opposition to Musser yeshivas fizzled out and most of its opponents uh, came around. It's not uh, far-fetched to suggest that the opponents of Musser, they reached the same conclusion that Rabbi Yisrael reached through his ingenuity a half a century earlier. He had such an intense understanding of where things are going that he arrived at the same destination just a lot earlier than everyone else did. Over time, Musser conquered almost all the yeshivos and actually succeeded in safeguarding them from the threats of Haskalah, and towards the end of the 19th century, socialism, which was sweeping away many of the Jewish youth. Infused by Musser, the yeshiva movement experienced a true golden age that lasted until World War II. These yeshivos were headed, were headed by veritable giants of men and spawned legions of Torah greats and kept the beacon of Torah bright amid a nation that was disintegrating all around them. My grandfather wrote a letter outlining the history of Musar Yeshivos and ends it as follows. Sikum Advarim, the bottom line. From heaven, Rabbi Yisrael Salanter was sent to save the upcoming generations, Torah for Torah, through the new Musser pedagogical approach 
that he in that he innovated, that he invented, and that was further developed by his great students. This is going to be the final Jewish History Podcast episode before the High Holidays and the Festival of Sukkot. We're going to be off until the second week in October, God willing. And I wish all the listeners and the whole Jewish people to have a happy and healthy and sweet new year. As always, please email me at rabbiwalby at gmail.com. Share these podcasts with your friends. And I thank you all.